me welcome J. Lauren Norris. One of the toughest jobs as a leader is a similar tough job to just being a parent or a coach or any other kind of role, like a leadership role, where you have people on your team and you can't figure out why they do what they do. Now, leaders have a responsibility, especially to people who themselves don't know why they do what they do. Great leaders motivate. They also inspire. They also know when to correct. And if you don't get that balance right, your relationship to the people you lead is going to be a disaster. That's what I want to talk about today on Leading Leaders. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast. And having raised a handful of teenagers and influenced dozens upon dozens more, it really is fascinating to me. I remember when I was mentoring in the high school on a regular basis, the, one of the fun aspects of mentoring in a high school these days is that a permanent distraction of the little digital devices like these things that the number of kids that would bring them to class and they would hide their ear pods inside or cover it up with their hair or they would throw a hat on like a like a skull cap or a, a beanie and they'd pull it down over their ears so you couldn't tell that they had them in and then they put their heads down on their desk and and play like it didn't matter and you know like they were feeling ill or something and really all they're doing is manipulating the process because Although their phone's not on their table, um, they may be listening to video games, they may be listening to their own music, they may be listening to white noise. You never know, but here's, here's the one thing you do know, and that is they're really not listening to you. Now, they also tend to use this same strategy in a, in a different kind of a almost backward way, and that is they put the earpods, AirPods in and they make it obvious that they have them in and then they kind of look right past you. But there's nothing playing in their ear. They're actually listening. They just don't want you to know that they're listening. It's kind of their, the young people's way of eavesdropping without you knowing they're eavesdropping. And both of those relational tactics have their own kind of motivation. And so it takes a little something from the leader to shake them out of that box. I remember many times coming into my mentorship class and I would show up and there would be a substitute teacher, not the regular teacher who's very familiar with these kids and their behaviors and which ones tend to cause trouble and which ones love to pay attention and which ones will engage in conversations and which ones won't. And a substitute would try to get them to line their desks up properly and then make sure they're straight in a row and, and put your phones away and pay close attention to the mentor while he's here and, and, and try to go through all of these processes to persuade engagement. I saw a, a Facebook meme the other day from uh, somebody that I've known for only a few years, but he said, if people are not engaging with you, it's because you're not engaging. And I kind of have that same philosophy when it comes to especially storytelling and public speaking. And I, I can't even answer the question why so few people engage with my Facebook page other than I'm, I guess maybe I'm not engaging either. But I don't have that problem face to face. I don't need a substitute teacher to tell the students, pay attention, look forward, look at Mr. while he's talking. I, I don't need that. In fact, 
I don't care if they wear their earpod, AirPods, earbuds, air, yeah, those things in their ears. I don't care if they wear those or not. Because when the conversation gets started, I'm reading their faces. I'm watching what they respond to, even when they have their head down. A shoulder will move, a foot will move, a, a knee will move, a, a body will shift when they're uncomfortable with the stuff that we're talking about. And a great leader knows that sometimes it's not the, the dialogue that you have with an employee or a team member that tells you what motivates them, what inspires them. No, it's the body language. It's the way their work production just kind of inches up a little bit or it doesn't. If you haven't studied things like the disc profile or disc profiles or the Latour color uh, schemes that, that help you understand people or the, the animals, the beavers and, and the otters, et cetera, et cetera, or uh, strengths finders or the five love languages or something to learn how to read people, then as a leader, you're going to have a real hard time motivating and inspiring people. But once you get to understand what it is that they're responding to, what what makes them happy, what irritates them, what causes them to do what they do. Why do they do what they do? As a great leader, you've taken the time to figure that out. You've learned to read people. You've learned to interpret their machinations, how they go through the day, who they talk to and who they don't. I remember, and it's been quite a while now, but I remember being hired for a job and I came into the job and, and I'm very passionate about what I do, whatever it is that I do. And in this particular environment, there was a, a guy that, well, he was a very soft-spoken guy. He's a very large guy, physically, very, very big guy, six foot plus and over 250 pounds, but very soft-spoken, very, very tender, very deliberate about everything. And in several of our staff meetings, large meetings, eight to 10 people, um, he and I would disagree on something. And I have a strong voice and I have strong opinions and I have no problem being corrected, but do your homework. Opinion against opinion, I don't think goes very far. And so I would express my opinion. He would express his opinion. I would express that that's just your opinion. And this is my opinion, how I came to this conclusion. And he would get upset. And I got called into the office. And I was told, you, uh, you can't do that anymore. He feels like he's physically being threatened. I'm like, he's on that end of the table. I'm on this end of the table. I never got out of my chair. I never said... But his interpretation, his read of my passion for what I had to say made him feel threatened. And so my boss said, just, you know, just back off. So I said, okay. And I went into my shell. And for about two weeks, I stayed in my shell. I came in the door. I went to my desk. I did my work. I didn't hang out at the coffee shop. I didn't hang out in the break room. I made my coffee. I went right back to my desk. In fact... I started bringing my own like snacks and stuff in a lunch bag so I didn't even have to get up from my desk unless it was to go down the hall for the necessary room. And it took about a week and a half, maybe two weeks, and I got called right back into the office. And I'm like, what? You told me not to talk so much, so I don't talk so much. And I don't understand what the problem is. And the three people who were higher in the rank than me said, Though the problem is that we had no idea how much influence you had over the other 50-ish people in this building. I mean, they don't even work for you. They don't even work under you. They, they, they have completely different jobs. But your demeanor, your mood, your attitude is so infectious in this place that when you're 
silent. It, you can feel it in this building. And I'm like, okay. They're like, we, we need you to be yourself. I'm like, you need to make up your mind. I'm, I'm kind of feeling like like Dash, you know, in, in The Incredibles. Run, run, fast, slow down just a little bit. Run a little faster. You're going to run a little faster than that. Just slow down. Just make up your mind. Do you want me to be me or do you not want me to be me? Because I can't be anybody else. I can either be me completely quiet or I can be myself. But there's not really a, a difference in me. It's just whether I express myself or I don't. And see, that, that level of motivation that drives me to do what I do, that inspires me to do what I do, it's extremely infectious and it's very contagious. Then when I get into an environment and I get passionate about what I'm saying, it catches on with other people and people tend to move into that. And I know that that's in me naturally. So when I'm in an environment where leadership is needed, I don't hold back. I let that passion float. Great leaders tend to do that. And I'm not calling myself a great leader. I'm saying when you see other people move into a room <clears throat> and their mood, their attitude, their sense of purpose, their sense of direction is infectious. They have all the makings of being a great leader. They will influence large amounts of people. They will inspire people to do something without ever telling them to do it. The natural motivation that's in them will cause the motivation in people. When the substitute teacher felt like Everybody had to pay attention. Everybody had to look up front. Everybody had to turn off their cell phones. Everybody had to engage in some way. I realized that that substitute teacher probably had a challenge with that. But let me also say this, because this is the double-edged sword, if you will, of good leadership. It's really infectious, contagious, and self-motivating. It, it's kind of addictive. When you know that you can walk into an environment and just bring your bubbly self, you see a lot of this in sales environments where somebody just brings their bubbly self and everybody suddenly is in a great mood. And, and because that person is like that, everybody loves it when they come in the room. And then you got the other kind of leader that when they walk in the room, everybody's head down, elbows up. They're just working, 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 working because they're terrified of getting busted, not doing their thing. A great leader has to have the ability both to motivate and inspire and to correct. So you've got to be able to correct knowing what people's love languages are, knowing what it is that motivates them, what is it that inspires them internally. If you can't read people enough to figure that out, then your correction is going to seem harsh, judgmental, uh, unfair. It's when you get to know the people and you get to know what it is that drives them, what makes them behave the way they do. Why do they do what they do? When you've taken the time to figure that out, then you also know that you can motivate them and correct at the same time. Yep. See, the, some little parenting tricks that you learn when you're dealing with toddlers is just yelling no doesn't seem to get the point across. I would say more than about half the time. Now, there are times that an emphatic no and some kind of discipline is going to be absolutely required because disobedience at that level is going to be life-threatening later on. Don't stick your hand on the stove. Stop trying to grab that thing that's spinning in the garbage disposal. Don't run out in front of cars. You don't have time to explain that. You have to have an emphatic no, and that's the end. But most of the time in working with a toddler, if they have something they're not supposed to have, Rather than just snatching it away from them and them not understanding why, it's better to trade them. Give them, give them something that they should have or that they might want instead. 
if they're trying to eat the Tide Pods, get them a lifesaver. Give them something that is acceptable so that their desire for whatever it is they're trying to do is a good thing. That, that human nature doesn't stop at five years old. It doesn't stop at 25 years old. It doesn't stop at 55 years old. If somebody has a motivation to do something, but what they're doing is destructive or what they're doing is unproductive, put that energy into something else. That's how you both motivate and correct at the same time. That starts, though, with understanding what it is that's causing them to do what they do. Why do they do what they do? Then how do you get that same energy moving in the direction of productivity? How do you get that same energy, that same passion, that same desire moving in a way that's going to benefit both of you? That's what great leadership is about. Oh, it's not easy. It, it takes some time. It takes the ability to be able to observe and read people from a distance in a quick manner and to be able to respond to whatever it is that motivates them. When you can figure out what motivates people easily, then you can motivate them, you can inspire them, you can correct them and not lose any ground. When you have the carrot and the stick at your disposal, put the carrot on the end of the stick. It just drives the motivation a little further out. You don't have to choose between the carrot and the stick. They work really well together in tandem. Trust me, try it. Send some comments my way. I'd love to know what you think about it. But I really do believe that great leaders learn to motivate and inspire and correct all in one fail swoop, all in one relationship, all in one direction. And when they learn to do that, they will not only influence the people in their immediate circle, but two or three ripples away as well. I challenge you today to learn to motivate and inspire and correct all at the same time. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast for Tell It Like It Is TV. Have a blessed day. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom.